One day in the early spring of 1834, a former riverboat captain named Bodkin hung a sign on the front of the stone house he constructed along State Street. The sign read, Mansion House, Lodging for Travelers. With that, he opened the doors of a place that served as a hotel of one kind or another for more than a century. It also became home to a legendary character that left an impression on the hotel unlike any other, an impression that continued to haunt the place until its untimely demise. When the mansion house was open, Captain Botkin chose the name randomly. It was one used by hotels all over the world taken from the home of the Lord Mayor of London, and Botkin thought it was as good a name as any. It became known all over the region for its fine food, service, and location on State Street, appealing to those traveling by both land and water. It wasn't the first hotel in Alton, but for a time in 1836, it was the only one open for business. Over the next few years, the mansion house changed hands several times. The second proprietor was Louis Kellenberger, followed by William Harned, who became known as its most colorful owner. When Harned took over, he remodeled and refurnished the place. Advertisements boasted of large, airy bedrooms, private sitting rooms, carpeted and furnished with the latest periodicals, the best table the market can afford, proximity to steamboat landing and business district, and the best hotel in Alton. Harned was also a close friend of Reverend Elijah Lovejoy, and it was at the mansion house that Lovejoy held the final meeting of his abolitionist society on the night he was killed. Plans had been hatched there for the defense of his fourth printing press, a defense that failed. The hotel also hosted many famous guests, including Abraham Lincoln, Stephen Douglas, and Illinois' governors Cole and Reynolds. But the death of Elijah Lovejoy weighed heavily on William Harned, and the hotel closed its doors for a time, finally reopening in the mid-1840s. In 1855, the house was purchased and turned into a Catholic boarding school by nuns of the Ursuline Order and the Daughters of Charity. In 1864, during the height of the smallpox epidemic at the Alton Prison, the house was turned into a hospital. In fact, the very first hospital in town. The sisters responded to a plea from President Lincoln to try and get the smallpox epidemic under control in the city. They began treating these sick people at the hospital in the isolation camp on Sunflower Island. Gradually, under their watchful care, the epidemic began to subside. The legends say that many of the people who had come down with the dreaded disease died in the mansion house and claim their ghosts still walk there restless and frightened of the illness that suddenly ended their lives. But if these ghosts did walk there, they may not have walked alone. According to stories, anecdotes, and historical records, this house was haunted long before the Civil War. In fact, the mansion house has the rather dubious honor of being one of the first documented haunted houses in the city of Alton. The most famous otherworldly resident of the place is the ghost of a man named Tom Boothby. He was a grizzled old Indian fighter who came to live in the hotel in 1836. Boothby had seen more than his share of adventure during the Indian battles of the War of 1812. As a result, he'd retired to Alton with only one arm and one eye, an arrow having put out the other one. 
Boothby occupied the southwest corner room on the second floor and quickly became known as an eccentric recluse. He seemed to have plenty of money, but was closed-mouthed about his past. He also didn't leave his room. Between the time he arrived in 1836 and when his body was carried out for burial two years later, he had a boy who delivered his meals to him each morning. The following day, Boothby would leave a payment and an empty tray for the young man to exchange for a full one. Boothby soon became well-known at the mansion house. He was obsessed with the idea that the ghosts of the Native Americans he killed in his past were coming to murder him, and he'd often wake up screaming in the middle of the night. This would also rouse the other tenants in the house, and soon someone would be pounding on Boothby's door to settle him down. Although he never opened the door, he would typically murmur a few words of apology to the guests in the hallway outside his room, and the rest of the night would pass in peace. How often this late-night screaming occurred is unknown, but apparently it happened often enough that Boothby gained a reputation among the guests. Only the most recent tenants ever bothered to venture out into the dark corridors when Boothby began crying out in the night. And soon they, too, learned to ignore the chilling sounds. And so it went for the next two years. Whispers spread throughout the city that Boothby had been moving from town to town along the Mississippi always hoping to stay one step ahead of the ghostly attackers who pursued him. And he ended up in Alton. He was dismissed as a lunatic, but perhaps Tom Boothby was not as crazy as everyone believed he was. One night, Boothby's screams were different than in the past. Instead of his crying that the Indians were coming to kill him, this time they had found him. He was being strangled, he cried out, but no one came to his aid. The other guests had been awakened so many times before they simply ignored the commotion. Well, the next day passed like all the others. The young man who came to deliver Boothby's meals picked up the empty tray and left a full one, just as he always did. It was not until the following morning that he realized something was wrong. The tray from the day before had been untouched, which had never happened in the previous two years. Concerned, Probably more for his future salary than for Boothby's welfare, the young man fetched William Harned, who opened the door to Boothby's room. They found the old man inside, sprawled sideways across the bed. His nightshirt was ripped and torn as if he'd been involved in a struggle, and his one good eye stared wide with fright. The Indians were strangling him, Boothby had screamed, but the man's own remaining hand was tightly holding his throat. Years passed and Tom Boothby remained unable to rest. Newspapers reported that his tale became, quote, the best known ghost story in Alton. And because of his continued presence in the house, his old room on the second floor was left unoccupied for some time. Only guests unaware of his story were ever given this room and they soon added to the lore of horrifying cries and frantic footsteps that had plagued the hotel for so long. By the 1940s, the story of Tom Boothby was largely forgotten. The hotel closed and was later turned into an apartment building, but this didn't stop Tom from making his presence known. In October 2000, I was chatting with some new arrivals in Alton, and they told me about some strange incidents occurring in their new home. They described the sound of a man's footsteps and even the sounds of cries that were sometimes heard at night. I asked them where they lived, and to my surprise... Not really. They gave the address of the mansion house. They also stated that their apartment was in the southwest corner of the building. 
Have you ever heard the story of Tom Boothby? I asked them. Sadly, in April 2010, the mansion house was destroyed by fire. That night, more than 160 years of history, dreams, and ghost stories went up in smoke. If Tom Boothby still paced the floors of his old hotel room and cried out in the night, his story had finally come to an end. Welcome to a special On The Side podcast from American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to bringing you the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of our hometown, Alton, Illinois. We've returned home to Alton for a special limited season of shows that takes us back to the very beginning of the podcast. We've got updates and lots of new stories to go along with season one of American Hauntings, which delved into the history and hauntings of Alton. We're trying to make up for the bad sound from season one and the fact that I didn't have all the stories from Alton's history that I have today. I gathered that research over the last few years and released a brand new edition of my book, Haunted Alton, and we wanted to bring some of those new stories to our listeners. So we hope you enjoy episode eight from one of the most haunted small towns in America, Alton, Illinois. As you might have already guessed from our previous episodes, Alton has more than its share of haunted houses. Many of these places are private residences and not open to the public. Others have been lost over the years to change, decay, and the ravages of time. Still, others remain in all their terrifying glory. So in this episode, I wanted to introduce you to three haunted houses in town. Although this hardly scratches the surface of the number of local haunts I've uncovered over more than two decades of research into Alton's history and hauntings, these happen to be my favorites, and two of them are still standing. Each story is very different, but they do have one thing in common. They are undeniably Alton stories. If you grew up here, you'll know exactly what I mean. They're stories that can only take place in Alton, filled with local flavor and sometimes local absurdity. So keep listening if you dare, and be sure to keep the lights on when you do. I'll never set foot in that house again. The unnamed tenant of a house located on West 4th Street in Alton told a reporter from a local newspaper in 1922. The reporter said that this former occupant had a very good reason for that. The house was haunted. He and his family were being kept up all night, almost every night, by footsteps pacing up and down the stairs, someone walking around the upstairs hallway, and a man who could be heard crying for what seemed like hours. Whoever he is, he can have the place, the tenant said in disgust, and good luck to whoever moves in next. Yes, good luck, because based on the tragedy that occurred in the house in 1912, the otherworldly occupant of the place probably wouldn't be leaving anytime soon. William Gerhardt and his wife Louisa had moved into the house on West 4th Street during the prime of their lives. Although they never had children, which was sort of a requisite of American life in the early 1900s, the Gerhards were happily married and William had worked for the last 28 years as a clerk at the Schwepp clothing store in Alton. 
They were also well off financially. William's father had passed away a few years before and left him a sizable estate. He owned his own home plus a rental property and had several thousand dollars in the bank. He'd always been frugal and careful about his money, some said, to the point of obsession. And that was probably where the problem began. In 1911, William abruptly resigned from his position at the Schweppes store and bought out the cigar store of his father-in-law, J.A. Neininger. He knew nothing about the cigar business and friends advised against the sale. Even his father-in-law tried to discourage the purchase. Still, William was convinced that he wanted to carry on the family's tradition in the cigar business and keep the store and small factory open, but soon found that his friends and family were right. The business was a huge disappointment for him. He worked in the retail clothing industry for almost three decades and was utterly unsuited for running a cigar company. He didn't even smoke them. Even so, he hung on to the business for just over a year before abruptly selling the building and closing the shop and factory. He didn't speak to his father-in-law about it. He said he was too ashamed of his failure. Over the course of the next two months, William deteriorated mentally, anxious and desperate to secure new employment. He'd called on everyone he knew in Alton's clothing stores, but no one had anything immediately open for him. They knew William and liked him and promised to call as soon as something opened up, but that was too long for William to wait. He was unable to stand being out of work and complained that his mind, quote, grew sick when he was idle. Well, his friends were baffled and tried to encourage him. They assured him all would be fine. He owned real estate, had money in the bank, and had been saving all his life. But William was inconsolable. Friends assured him that new work would be available soon, but just before he died, he told another acquaintance that he believed nothing was left for him and that no one wanted him. William Gerhardt had reached the limits of his mental endurance during an era when no one was capable of recognizing the state he was in or able to help him with it. There weren't any psychiatrists in Alton at that time. The evening before his suicide, William stopped at the Schweppes store on Piazaw Street to visit some old friends. They later recalled that he seemed to be in a more cheerful state of mind. William hadn't stopped in to look for work. He told them he just wanted to stay hello. Or perhaps more accurately, he wanted to say goodbye. He went home for dinner with his wife, but William complained of insomnia after they went to bed. Louisa knew he'd had trouble sleeping since losing the cigar business, so she did her best to soothe him, but there wasn't much else she could do. The next morning, April 25th, 1912, William said he was tired and wanted to remain in bed, so Louisa rose and made breakfast. When she went to call him, she found the bedroom door had been locked. After some persuasion, she succeeded in getting him to open the door and come downstairs with her. He ate some breakfast, then returned to the bedroom, he said to take a nap. Shortly before noon, Louisa was downstairs in the parlor and heard a loud cracking sound from the upstairs bathroom. She hurried in to find that William had shot himself in the right temple. The revolver was lying next to him on the tile floor. Blood was pooling around his head. Unable to rouse him, she called Dr. Fisher, who hurried to the scene. He pronounced William dead on the floor of the bathroom. When Dr. Fisher spoke those words, he said Louisa became, quote, completely unnerved. 
She had been under a heavy mental strain herself, seeing her husband in such a depressed state of mind and was, the doctor stated at the inquest, quote, totally unprepared to stand such a shock as she received. What happened to Louisa Gerhardt in the years that followed is unknown. Her husband's estate was settled, the house is sold, and she likely moved away from Alton as all records of her come to an end after that. As for William, who was only 47 years old, he was buried in the Alton City Cemetery after a small private funeral service in his home. His body was laid to rest, but his spirit was not. If the stories of the tenants who moved into the house on West 4th Street after William's suicide are be to believed, he remained a restless presence there for at least the next three decades. Occupants of the house maintained that sounds of his strange, erratic behavior after losing the cigar business were still heard in the house. Footsteps paced relentlessly up and down the hallways, rattled the stairs, and went back and forth across the floors of rooms. There was, of course, no one visible in those places when the sounds were heard. Residents complained of being unable to sleep, but those complaints only came after they realized they were dealing with no earthly intruder. One family had immediately contacted the police one night after hearing loud stomping sounds walking back and forth on the house's second floor. Fearing a break-in, the police were summoned, but officers found no one in the house. When the sounds continued, they slowly realized a ghost inhabited the place. A less-than-helpful neighbor informed them of what had occurred in the house just a few years before. When they learned about William's suicide, they moved out. They were the first family to abandon the house because of the ghost, but were not the last. Others followed and spoke of the same unsettling noises, but added something new. The sound of a man weeping. The owners were awakened once in the early morning hours by a man's hoarse sobbing. He sounded like his heart was broken, one tenant later said. Once the family determined the crying had no explainable source, they also moved out. How long William continued to linger in his former home is unknown. Over time, the newspaper became less interested in sharing stories of ghosts in haunted houses, and the stories dropped off. I could find no other mention of the haunting or the rapid turnover of tenants. Does William linger there still? I don't know, but I hope he doesn't. Surely a man who caused so much grief for himself in life deserves some peace after death. Anyone who grew up anywhere around Alton, whether interested in haunted history or not, has heard of the McPike Mansion on Albee Street. These days, you don't even have to be from Alton to know about it. It's been in books, on websites, and on television, and in every case, the readers and viewers have been assured of just how haunted the McPike Mansion is. If you're skeptical of the existence of ghosts, you probably take such stories with a grain of salt, but don't be too quick to judge. If you ask me personally if the McPike Mansion is legitimately haunted, I can give you a simple one-word answer. Yes. 
The McPike Mansion was built in 1869 for Henry G. McPike, a prominent Alton businessman, real estate developer, and politician. It was designed by well-known architect Lucas Feifenberger, who also designed many homes, churches, and schools in the region. He even won an award at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago for one of his designs. Feifenberger also went on to serve as Alton's mayor four times. He's credited with many of the town's improvements during his time in office, including getting curbs and gutters added to the streets and improving Alton's waterworks. The city's first telephone was installed in his office in 1881, and he and his wife Elizabeth raised five children in their home on State Street. He passed away in 1918, leaving behind a legacy of wood and stone in Alton. Now, Henry McPike's family can be traced back to Scotland. His ancestry includes several patriots who fought during the Revolutionary War, including Captain Moses Guest McPike of New Jersey and Captain James McPike, both of whom were at Valley Forge with George Washington. James McPike went west to Kentucky in 1795, bringing with him his sons John and Richard. Henry McPike was a son of John McPike and came to Alton as a very young man in 1847. Henry soon became active in Alton's business and political community and over a period of years was involved in about a dozen different companies, working as a real estate agent, box manufacturer, insurance executive, and a lot of other things. He also became the president of the oldest horticultural society in Illinois. Henry had a knack for making money, but he didn't plan to get involved in politics. His initial interest in anything resembling public service was his belief in the abolitionist movement. His father had been the editor of a Whig newspaper and was an early advocate of ending slavery. He was one of the organizers of the Lincoln-Douglas debate in Alton and was seated on the platform during the event. Regardless, though, he never sought political office, although he was pressured to run for various positions many times. During the Civil War, he served as the Deputy Provost Marshal of the district, placing him in a management position in the War Department. This apparently piqued his interest, and he began acting as a representative for many Illinois and national conventions. Henry was later elected to serve on the City Council, which led to his terms as Alton Mayor in 1887 and 1891. Well, in 1869, the wealth that Henry had accumulated led to the design and construction of an Italianate Victorian home on the outskirts of Alton. Officially known as Mount Lookout, the house had 16 rooms, marble banisters and fireplace mantles, tile floors, and a vaulted wine cellar. It had been built on 15 acres of land as a country estate so that Henry could pursue his passion for horticulture. The property was planted with rare trees, shrubs, herbs, fruit orchards, and flowers, and it contained a vineyard with various types of grapes, including the McPike grape. It became known across the country for the wine it produced and won gold medals in almost every competition it entered. Henry's career in Alton and his time at Mount Lookout left a mark on the city's history, and it was never dull. He married three times, Mary in 1854, Nancy, or Nanny as she was known, in 1869, and that one ended in divorce, and Eleanor or Nellie in 1885. He had eight children, although one son, Robert, died when he was only six months old in 1866. Henry died on April 18, 1910, after a short illness. 
Eight days before his death, he had arrived home with his wife and youngest daughter, Moreland, from a winter trip to Florida and Cuba. During the trip, his health had been fine and he arrived back in Alton in good spirits, but took a turn for the worse within a few days and died on April 18th at Mount Lookout. According to Henry's will, his wife Nellie received his business building at Piazza and Broadway Street, which was then the Boston store, his life insurance, and all his stocks. The McPike building occupied by the Lyric Theater on Broadway was divided between his son Eugene and his daughter Jenny Wilkinson. Sunflower Island, which had once been occupied by the military during the Civil War and used as a smallpox hospital, was given to John McPike and two of Henry's granddaughters. Mount Lookout was divided into four parts. Jenny received the south end, Moreland received the north end of the property, and Eugene received the side that fronted Bell Street. His son John received the house and the land that surrounded it. The remainder of his estate, about a hundred properties in and around Alton, were distributed among his heirs. All his personal belongings, family heirlooms, and curios were given to his children. He also divided among them the proceeds from the sale of his famous McPike grape. Nellie remained living at the house she'd shared with her husband until 1912, when she and Moreland decided to go to Europe. Alton Mayor Edmund Beale gave her a letter of introduction to public officials in Europe, and she remained overseas for the next 13 years. At the outbreak of World War I, Nellie and Moreland were in Germany, and they had to flee the country because they were Americans. They remained in Italy during the war doing volunteer work for the Red Cross. After the war, they eventually returned to the United States, and Nellie went to live in Colorado, where she passed away in 1934. Moreland brought her ashes back to Alton so they could be placed next to Henry's place of rest. After Nellie went to Europe, John McPike took up residence in the house he'd inherited from his father. He lived at Mount Lookout until he died in 1936. After that, it was purchased by Paul A. Lysinger, a former superintendent at the Scarf and Coke and Corrugated Company in St. Louis. He and his wife Florence lived in the house until Paul died after a long illness in 1951. Paul's estate was settled and the house was sold in 1954 to Paul Davis, the owner of a market in Upper Alton. The estate, already starting to show some signs of wear and tear, became the subject of controversy in the city. Davis wanted to demolish the house and develop the four acres of property around it into a shopping center. Well, he quickly ran into zoning problems and some very vocal opposition to the house's destruction from Alton residents. So in 1955, Davis surrendered and turned the mansion into an apartment house. And that's when the ghost story started. Many people have contacted the current owners over the years to talk about their experiences living in the apartments in the 1950s and 60s. They spoke of footsteps on the stairs, doors that opened and closed, lights that behaved erratically, and more. Were they merely the natural part of an old decaying house or ghosts? Well, far too many of the occupants believe they were ghosts. One woman told a story about herself and her brother being punished as children in the building. When they misbehaved, their mother made them sit on the steps outside their apartment in the dark. She recalled many times when they were terrified by footsteps on the stairs when no one was there. And once, she said, they saw a woman in a white dress descend the stairs toward them and then vanish. She said they made sure to behave much better after that. 
By the early 1970s, the house was in poor condition. Thieves frequently broke in and stole everything from the house that was not nailed down and a lot of things that were. They removed the marble fireplace mantles and even the toilets. The staircase banisters disappeared along with the massive interior doors that had been custom made for the home's 12-foot ceilings. Chandeliers and light fixtures were torn out, radiators were removed, and plumbing fixtures and copper pipes were taken. Perhaps worse than the scavengers were the vandals that followed in their wake. Soon, spray-painted graffiti was covering the walls, windows were broken, and plaster walls were torn apart. It was pointless destruction for the sheer thrill of it. Time and the elements had not been kind to the old house either. In the 1980s, the box gutters failed and water began to seep into the home. The roof started to deteriorate and leak, causing the floors to fall into such ruin that many of them became no longer safe to walk on. With all the window glass broken, the damaged interior was left to the weather and the days of Mount Lookout seemed to be numbered. Well, then in 1990, the house was purchased by a contractor from St. Louis named Gary Hendricks. He'd come to Alton in search of a modest Victorian home, but became entranced with the McPike Mansion instead. Even after seeing all the destruction wreaked on the house, he still had hope for the place and immediately began working on renovating it. As a self-described stickler for detail, his plans for the house were extensive, and he estimated it would take him at least two years to restore the mansion to its former glory. He began remaking the eaves brackets of the house with old lumber, since modern lumber wasn't the same, and planned to floor the solarium with white marble, along with many other improvements and enhancements. When he finished the work on the interior, he planned to also build a new carriage house for the property and a Victorian gazebo for the lawn. My mother always laughs when I start one of my restoration projects, he said in a 1991 interview, and she tells me I will never get it done. Well, in this case, it appears that Hendrix's mother was correct because in 1994, the house was on the market again and very little had been accomplished from the list of grand plans the contractor had for the property. But there was still a little hope. In 1994, Sharon and George Ludke purchased the house at auction. Sharon, a now retired teacher in the Edwardsville School District, stopped by the house on the day that it was to be auctioned off. She and her husband, then an associate professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, had always dreamed of buying an old house and fixing it up. So on a lark, Sharon put in a bid on the house. She was a little surprised to learn later that she'd won it. Okay, she was very surprised, but they were determined to make the best of it. When the brick ranch house next door to the mansion came up for sale a few months later, the Ludkeys sold their home in Godfrey and moved to Albee Street living in the shadow of their newly purchased haunted house. The uphill struggle to restore the ramshackle mansion began that year and continues today. The plan has always been to restore it and turn it into a bed and breakfast, but that wasn't as easy as they thought it would be. Right off the bat, they were disappointed to find that contrary to the assurances received on the day of the auction, no grant money was available for the house from any federal, state, or local agencies. The house had been added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1980, but that was the extent of the attention it received. The Ludkeys were on their own, 
but they were not ready to give up on the old place just yet. Their first break came when Bob St. Peter's, the Alton Area Landmarks Association president, nominated the house for inclusion on the list of Illinois' top 10 endangered places. The list focused on historic properties that were architecturally significant, but at risk because of deterioration, demolition, improper development, or bad public policy. As a result of the publicity generated by the list, the Lutkes did receive a couple of small grants to help generate architectural reports about what could be done with the house. But that was it. They have continued the fight, though, facing a myriad of problems with the city, and the valiant efforts continues to make sure that the McPike Mansion remains a part of the city's present and future, not just the past. The McPike Mansion could be a valuable asset to the city as a historic site if mines were open enough to see it. So far, though, the many state and local agencies that control the historic purse strings have fallen short. Luckily, though, another faction of the community has stepped in to help the mansion survive in ways that city officials and historical groups have failed to do. This underappreciated community has contributed more to the mansion's survival than anyone else over the past nearly three decades. And Sharon Lucky can assure you that if it were not for them, the mansion would be gone. Now, who is this group? The ghost enthusiast community, of course. Stories of a haunting in the McPike Mansion began in the late 1950s, after it was turned into apartments by Paul Davis. Newspaper stories about the house, which was badly neglected then, had already started to refer to it as, quote, looking like a haunted house. But there were no actual stories to match its spooky atmosphere. Well, that changed, of course, and the first-hand accounts seemed to multiply as time went on. Even though the mansion has not been the scene of multiple murders or suicides or deadly tragedies over the years, there's no way to deny that multiple people have died within its walls. The Big Pike Mansion haunting is not usually a terrifying one. Yes, it can be unnerving based on the numerous accounts by people who have no reason to lie, but the activity itself seems benign, as if the ghosts who linger here do so because they want to not because they're trapped in this world or left behind some sort of serious business. The mansion just seems haunted by the occupants of yesterday who simply never wanted to leave. There have been a lot of trespassers and curiosity seekers who've entered the house over the years because it, quote, looked haunted, and many of them claim to encounter ghosts. In fact, there have been literally hundreds of stories that have circulated over the years from the chilling to the downright silly. Sharon Lucky's encounters hold much more weight than any of those. When she bought the house, Sharon had never given much thought to ghosts. However, it didn't take long for her to believe that the house was haunted. She now feels there are several ghosts inside the house, including Paul Lassinger, who had been a heavy smoker during his life. It's not uncommon for visitors to the house to get strong smells of cigarette smoke in the place, even though no smoking has been permitted in the structure in decades. Sharon also reported that on one occasion, a group of people gathered at the house, smelled the smoke, and saw a cloud of it appear above their heads. Sharon's first encounter with Paul's ghost was about six weeks after buying the house. She was on the property watering some plants and saw a man standing in the window, looking out toward where she was in the front yard. He almost immediately vanished. Well, a chill came over her, but she remembered what the man looked like, right down to the white shirt and striped tie he was wearing. 
She later obtained a photograph of Paul and immediately recognized him as the man she'd seen in the window. Sharon has since been told by many people who knew Paul or his family that he loved the house, and they wouldn't be surprised if he'd never left it. Another spirit in the house is thought to be a domestic servant that Sharon had dubbed Sarah. She was little more than a presence with a nickname until a man came by the house one day and presented the luckies with some books he'd removed from the house nearly two decades before. One of the books had the name Sarah Wells written inside of it. Sharon never claimed to have any psychic abilities, but explaining how the name had just popped into her head, well, that was hard. Since her first encounter with Sarah, Sharon has been touched and even hugged by her presence. She's often caught the scent of lilac on the house's third floor, which had once been the servants' quarters, and she believes the smell is connected to Sarah's ghost. In the summer of 1999, one of the strangest and most challenging to explain events occurred at the house. A video made at the time of the incident has since appeared on television and has yet to be debunked, even by skeptics and experts in special effects. One summer weekend, Renee Cruz, a mutual friend of Sharon and mine, was in town from out of state. Renee was a professor at California University in California, Pennsylvania, and Sharon took her on a tour of the house, including the basement. Renee had a video camera with her and was making a video of the tour and managed to capture what happened next on tape. As she turned a corner in the basement, an eerie white mist appeared and moved toward her. Now, I say mist because there's really no other way to describe what this white shape looked like and what it was. Now, Renee had never seen anything like it before. It swirled all around her, moving like it had a mind of its own. She later described it as having what seemed like an electrical charge. It surrounded her, which was seen on camera, and then inexplicably moved away. She followed the mist to several locations in the basement. As she got near it, it would move away each time. But there were no air currents. The doors were all closed. In addition, it seemed to move with purpose and direction, not randomly, like it would if a draft was blowing it. Finally, the mist vanished and didn't return. Everyone there that day saw the mist, and it was recorded on video. And as mentioned, it remains a mystery. It has since been examined by everyone from videographers to debunkers and ghost researchers, and so far, no one has been able to successfully explain what it was or how it was able to behave in the manner it did. A clip from the video was even shown on a program on ABC television and turned out to be one of the show's only segments the experts couldn't duplicate and explain. Well, two years after that, I had my first encounter in the house, and Renee was again in town. I also had some friends visiting from the Chicago area, and we all went to the McPike Mansion to spend the night. Now, at that time, the mansion was still safe enough to roam the entire building, and we did so. We spent hours on every floor and in the basement, hoping to experience or record some kind of ghostly activity. Overall, though, things were pretty quiet, but then something happened that weekend that convinced me that the house is truly haunted. Late that night, a small group of us gathered in the old McPike wine cellar, a vaulted brick room a few steps beneath the basement level. Over the years, many eerie things have happened there. I experienced some of them, and this night was no exception. Soon after getting seated in the wine cellar, one of the group members became claustrophobic and wanted to leave. Not sure how to get out of the basement, Renee offered to take her upstairs and outside for fresh air. The two of them left, and the rest of us waited for Renee to return. 
A few minutes later, we heard her coming back. Her footsteps crossed the front hall overhead, traveled through the house, and then went down the stairs to the basement. All of us clearly heard Renee cross the basement floor, and then a few moments later, the wine cellar door scraped open. The door barely cleared the stone floor and made a rough dragging sound whenever it was opened. We all turned to look at Renee, but she never came in. One of my friends went to the door to see what she was doing and looked out into the gloomy basement. It was empty. There's no one here, my friend said. A few minutes later, Renee came down the stairs and when told about what happened, insisted she had been outside the entire time. Others outside could confirm this and stated no one had entered the house between the time Renee came out and then went back in again. Well, this just added one more mystery to the long line of strange events at the McPike Mansion, and to this day, it remains unexplained. Now, this was not my last experience in the house, and many hundreds of others have visited the mansion over the years and left with a chilling encounter as their souvenir. I brought many groups to the house to experience the wine cellar, and dozens have sworn they were touched and brushed against by someone unseen in that dank, dark room. Others have heard whispers and voices or have seen things they can't explain. Just this past summer, an attendee at the Haunted America Conference, which is held annually in Alton, visited the McPike Mansion and took a photograph that revealed an unknown figure peering out one of the upstairs windows of the house, a section of the house where no one is allowed to go. The image was so convincingly strange that it was printed in area newspapers and made the rounds of the internet. So far, no one has been able to debunk it and say that it's anything other than a ghost. And thanks to incidents like these, the McPike Mansion remains a mystery. It's been a mecca for ghost hunters over the years, but there are hundreds of stories told by ordinary people who never expected to find anything out of the ordinary in the old house. It's an eerie and often wonderful place and a part of Alton's history that will hopefully never lose. Thanks for returning with us to Alton, Illinois, for a special series of podcasts for American Hauntings. We're taking a trip back in time, sort of, to the first season of the show, which collected some of the most famous stories from one of the most haunted small towns in America. But now we're back in Alton for more. Thanks to a lot of new research and Troy's new edition of Haunted Alton, we've got old stories with updates and new stories that are finally seeing the light of day. And by the way, I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey. How are you? Dude. Uh, Good? You tired? Know. You oh, know. yeah. Tired. Lots I'm going on. Yeah. Getting old. Yeah. Um, <laughs> getting old. <laughs> you know, as of this recording, yeah, birthday's coming up and things I'm thinking about. You yeah, know, that is true. You're going to be, age. what, 33 or something? 30, 34. Oh, God. Um, yeah. My uh, my sister left yesterday. She said, hey, the next time I see you, you'll be 34. And I said, <laughs> get, I said get the hell out of here. With this shit <laughs> yeah. And go home. <laughs> um. 
Oh, man. All right. We're back in Alton. We're getting close to the end. We're talking about at least one heavy hitter today and a couple of things I didn't know about. Yeah. Um, well, there's yeah, one. Yeah, there's one that's an old one, one that's a newer one, newer discovery anyway. And then, of course, the, you know, the big one. The, the big one. Well, you want to talk about some haunted houses? Sure. Yeah. 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 Let's get, get back into the spirit of what, how we kind of started this. a little Yeah, bit, it really know? is. And then the, I think these a couple of these were included in the beginning, too. Yes. So. Yeah. But just a little just with some uh, some other information thrown in for fun. Exactly. Uh, yes. Uh, because there were some things I there were some things I learned about the mansion house that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know why how it got its name. I didn't know you know, that they were serving dinners and all kinds of stuff. I didn't know that Lincoln and Stephen Douglas had both stayed there. And I did not know that it was Lovejoy's last stop uh -huh. on his way downtown to protect his printing press. So his last meal was at the mansion house. I, I'm assuming they had some snacks. You know, it was a meeting. So yeah. Yeah. Assume, you know, nuts or something. <laughs> Charcuterie board or whatever. Yeah, they did. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Yes, let's talk about this mansion house. Uh, a river, riverboat captain named Botkin opens the mansion house on State Street. It wasn't the first hotel open in Alton, but it was the only one for a, for a while. A while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, eventually, William Harnes takes over. He's a close friend of Reverend Elijah Lovejoy. Like you said, the hotel is a bunch of famous guests. Uh, eventually, kind of like a lot of buildings in Alton, seems to be a, turned into one thing or another, and eventually yeah, becomes a hospital for, sure. for the Civil War. Yeah. Um, and the, it was a boarding school first. Yes. You know, yes. a Catholic the girl. Ursuline, yeah. Yeah. And then, the, you know, they turn, had to turn it into a hospital during the epidemic because that wasn't just they weren't just treating prisoners because we talked about this, that mm -hmm. the smallpox spread into the community and there was no hospital in town. So they started it there. And then when the war was over and they decided to keep the hospital going, the mansion house wasn't big enough. So they moved across town. So mm -hmm. and this is not in this story, but they moved across town to a tavern that was owned by uh, Hunter, who started Hunterstown, um, and that then became St. Clair's Hospital. Got so it. that was the first big hospital, but they used a tavern. He gave them a tavern. He closed down a tavern, gave it to them to use to make a bigger spot than the mansion house. So, yeah. Right, yeah, right. So. Yeah, and you mentioned how the house is haunted uh, even before the Civil War, and we've talked about uh, Tom. Yeah, Boothby. Tom Boothby. Yeah, we've talked about old Tom before. So yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember this guy. He, I he's always a, like the story. It's, he's obsessed. It's a fun one to tell. He's obsessed with the ghost of um, the natives that he killed and thought they were haunting him. Uh, you know, screams in the middle of the night, things like that. They find him saying he's being strangled. He's kind of strangling himself, which. There's a lot to really unpack there if you really. Oh, want to I, get there's into, really a lot to unpack. Get into yeah, it. yeah. Um, but I, know, I, I, I don't ever say that he choked himself to death because that is impossible. I know. I usually just say that his hand was gripped around his throat because that's the story that they told. Yes. I mean that is the story that 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 Harned told about finding him, and so well, you know, I don't know. I, I don't. Who knows? What do you say? But, but somebody was haunting the house because there were an awful lot of people that kept telling the story. Now, let's let's just say it this way. Mm -hmm. Even though William Harned was telling the story about Tom Boothby and Tom Boothby seems to have been a real person. A lot of the details we'll never know if they have been added on to add some color to the story. But what we do know is that that part of the house did get a reputation for being haunted. I mean, you know, the southwest corner. I mean, that went on for years. And um yeah, I can remember talking. I was 
you know, lived in Alton then. And I remember talking to the guy that owned it and he would tell me about, you know, different people he'd had tenants he'd had that swore it was haunted. And mm-hmm. then I met, I really did meet those people who, you know, that, that's a, that's a true story about the couple that came to me and said, Hey, we moved into an apartment. We think it's haunted. Yeah. Um, what I didn't include in the story is that happened out at Fright Fest at Sinks Flags. Oh, and I no think shit. we talked about that. Remember a couple of years I did um, ghost stories at Fright Fest. Oh, right. I, I, I would never and, remember yeah. that. And so um, I was out there and I do those stories and then I, you know, I talked to a lot of people. I got a lot of good stories that way though, for people who just come and tell me their, you know, encounters. And I talked to lots of people who worked at like, you know, the Alexian brothers hospital and stuff, because I usually tell something about the exorcism or, you know, I just kind of mixed up the stories and this, and, you know, people knew that, you know, I was, I did tours and stuff in Alton and I had this couple come up and tell me that, you know, they had just recently moved to Alton and they're, were sure their apartment was haunted and to a T described everything that everybody had been talking about at the mansion house. And, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm guessing they stayed, but I, you know, but I don't know. It's too bad now that the mansion, you can't even tell where it was now. Somebody built a garage there. So really, um, it's attached. There's a garage attached to the house and they built it on the lot. Cause it, I mean, it burned completely yeah. in 2010. So, so this, so. yeah, I, I, I meant to look into it more, but, but it's, it's also on state, but where are we talking about it's going up the hill, you know, after you pass, um, uh, you pass Hainer library, you, you know, where the children's library is and you go, you're going up state street up the hill Yeah, and it's, it'll be on the left-hand side. And it's probably, Oh gosh, I'm just guessing here, probably six or seven houses up on the left. Uh-huh. And there's a greenhouse there now. And to the, uh, right side of the house, there's a garage and that garage is new. And it, you, I mean, you can't tell, it looks just like the house. They did a great job. It's beautiful mm-hmm. and it's a really nice house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's where the mansion house was. Cause you know how those houses are like connected to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That hill. And it used to sit right there. Got so it. it's, um, yeah, it's it's um, one of those things that is too bad it's gone kind of thing. Sure. Good for those people who got a garage, but for everybody <laughs> else, it's it's too bad because it's just one of those stories that has been around forever. Yeah. I mean, the the stories that, you know, I found in the newspapers or were just, you know, that's where I was finding all this stuff about the Lord Mayor's mansion and all, <laughs> all yeah, yeah. stuff. And they really love to tell that ghost story, man. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, you, you said like this over is, and over in the paper. Yeah, ba- yeah, like you said, like this is back when these sorts of things would be news, and they, they yeah, in the yeah, newspaper I mean, about and ghost they stories. were still printing them into like the 1930s and 40s. They'd still t- every time the mansion house came up, there would be a, a rundown of the Tom Boothby story. So I, I mean, I'm gonna say, I mean, to people today, it's not as famous because the house is gone. Now, if the house was still there, people were still talking about it. I would say Tom Boothby's probably the most famous named ghost in town mm. for sure uh just because of how much attention he got in the past but yeah you know once the house was gone it you know just yeah not so much anymore but well, now, just imagine it's just a cool story well, imagine now you just go into your garage and you just hear somebody screaming randomly <laughs> you know like it's yeah, yeah. I've, I've also yeah. told people because i make you know morbid jokes and stuff all the time like listen i would never ever hurt myself they're like how do you know and i'm like because i would choke myself to death and you have to really want that you can't you can't <laughs> yeah. do it yeah you, you would know? tom Booth, unless you yeah. do the you know michael hutchins exit or something no 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 okay yeah, yeah. maybe maybe it took it too far um but yeah. uh, well you you set me on the track i so, opened the you door know, and it's your I, fault 
I oh. opened the door and Troy just kicked it down. Ah, that is true. I did. Um, but yeah, but, but but destroyed by fire in 2010. I feel like I I mean, oh, I, dude, you had to have seen it a million times. Yeah, you just wouldn't know because I mean, it's not like there was it was just an apartment house. I mean, mm -hmm. there was no big sign outside or anything. It was nicely kept up. Just one of those brick row houses going up right. the street because there's so many houses going up around that curve. I yeah. I would love to live on that curve. And I know it's such, there's a... such neat houses right there in that bottom end of Christian Hill. I yeah. really like that area. Well, it's also are those um it, that section? It always I don't know if it reminds me of something, but it always looks like it's out of place and in a different town or time. And are those? Those aren't shotgun houses. Like, is there a term no, for um, what they're those, just they're like row mean? houses? Row and houses? Most okay. of them were um, going up the hill. Most of those were river workers. The, none of those are very big. It's right. not until you get higher up into Christian Hill that the houses get bigger because, and I think I've maybe we've talked about it or I've explained it before, but back in you know in the 19th century when there were a lot of diseases and things on the river, mm -hmm. um, people would you know, get sick and, and, and it became a common belief that the higher you built up onto the bluff, the, right. the clearer the air was. Mm -hmm. So the, the wealthier you were, the higher you built, which is why the Olin mansion is on that gigantic hill. Well, you want to be able to look down on people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, right? yeah. But the higher you go are the people who, you know, you go from, you know, the riverboat workers to the riverboat captains, to the people who own the boats, to the people who own the factories, who pay for the boats. And you know what I mean? It's so like a physical hierarchy. It know? is. It really yeah. is. Yeah, it is. It, in that side of town, it, it definitely is. So interesting. Um, yeah, well, I'll have, to, I'll have to look up because I'm sure, I mean, I went to St. Peter and Paul, you know, forever and I, I, I grew up in all. And I'm yeah, sure next I've time seen I, Next time I go up there, I'll uh, I'll try to get a picture of the house that's there now in the garage. Mm -hmm. I'll send it to you so you can see um, exactly. And then you'll go, oh, God, yeah, of yeah, course. course. Yeah, know, pass, pass it all the time. Little video or something up the street. So. Well, that, that's something um, I'm going to talk about in our next um, story. But uh, I just, I think about this revisiting Alton thing has just reminded me of like, so many times when I drive down the street, um, especially when we're going to talk about um, the store on Piasaw that um, William Gerhart goes to and stuff like that, um, mm -hmm. just driving in all these places in Alton and just thinking about like I'm or even I'm walking up the sidewalk that someone took their last walk on sure. or, or, yeah. or like no, just yeah, we've talked so about much that. crazy it history. Is. Yeah, it is. And it is. And, you know, when you think about downtown and stuff and uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and. They were talking about, you know, I swore I saw this picture of a train, of a passenger train or an Amtrak train coming right through the middle of downtown Alton. And that can't be real. And I said, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's the picture, you know, and and until just recently, there were train tracks around right in the, right up the middle of Piazza Street, yep. you know, right from downtown was all the railroads ran along the river. And that was how you got out of town, because that was the only exit. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that that valley between the two bluffs. Yeah, that's the only way to get out of town back then. You know, so and and, and we're talking the 70s, 1970s, not 1870s. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's it hasn't been that long. I mean, Alton can, can is a kind of a rugged spot, you mm -hmm. know. And so when you look and you see all these businesses that used to be there, it's it's fascinating. It really yeah. is. I mean, maybe not to people, you know, maybe somebody's listening to this because they they like the podcast and they're they live in, you know, Nevada or something. Yeah. And this means absolutely nothing to them. But if you listen to it and you're from around the area or if you've even ever visited Alton 
and you get a, a an idea of just how cool some of this stuff is mm-hmm. it's uh you know it's it's really neat to look back at all the old photos and stuff it really absolutely and, and some of the photos i've seen um are like down by uh yeah i guess you know third street you know where a lot mm-hmm. of the, the bars are and everything and it'll be all these amazing old cars you know old cars to me but you know that look so nice and and everything and then it'll be um you know uh women in dresses and men in these suits and top hats and everything and i'm thinking that's where i used to go to block parties and just get hammered exactly and i'm like what they were doing was so much nicer than i know and you look at the buildings and now they've got bars in them and stuff and they used to be dry goods stores and opera houses and stuff and you know and so much of it unfortunately is gone too from downtown because you know, um, either Life fires yeah. or floods or just the passage of time, right. you know, which is always a waste, in my opinion. I hate that. I hate the passage tear down old buildings. <laughs> well, I hate when they just tear down old buildings instead of fixing them up. But I mean, I I get it. Not everybody thinks the same way. I well, do, yeah, so. but you know, there's there there some people in Alton are trying to fix up certain theaters and hotels and things like that and, and, and then just boarding up the windows and letting them sit you mean uh-huh. so, yeah yeah so yeah. I, get, I get what you're I saying know. and it's frustrating um if someday if hey if I ever get a ridiculous amount of money I know me too I already so, I was just talking about it at the book signing the yeah other, the other weekend was you know if I won the lottery this is what I'd buy right you know so Oh, well, okay. Let's move, let's move on to uh, let's so move on. Yeah. West West 4th Street 1922. William and Louisa is it Gerhardt? Ger- Gerhardt. Gerhardt. Yeah, Gerhardt. 1912. Um so you mentioned two things. Um they were well off financially and they had no kids. Do you think there's a connection? Yeah, probably. There? So, although, you know, I also mentioned though at, at that time period you were expected to have kids, but for whatever reason they didn't. But right. it didn't I mean, it, it, I don't think it affected them badly as far as their life went, you know. Oh no, I meant they had more I meant yeah, they had exactly. more money. Exactly. No more money because of it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, and this is a guy who um, you know, had been in the same business for 28 years. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there was no reason why he wouldn't be happy. He just did something dumb. You know? Right. Well, well, this is, the more I was reading about this though, it seems like just um, an earlier version of just like, you know, depression and anxiety, or maybe even yeah, oh, some yeah, like absolutely. excessive that's, compulsive that's kind I'm of saying. things. There was nobody to, to recognize it or treat it. At right. The time, right. You know, and that and that sucks because like uh, I, I I make the joke a lot of times people say like uh, you know you realize once you have all this money and everything like that it doesn't just fix everything and I'm like let me find that out for yeah, myself yeah I'd like to yeah let me know uh, I'd like to try that and yes. see what happens so yes. I'm gonna but, say it might help but yeah but this guy apparently you know it didn't it didn't help he seemed to to me from my personal experience to be you know very anxious and worried about things all the time yeah. and not and, able to and, get it together. And what what got him there was something that we often talk about, the best of intentions. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes. But that's what the road to hell is paved with. Of good course, intentions. So, I, and you know, the plan was let's keep this business open and yeah, and tribute to my wonderful father-in-law who's going, dude, don't do it. Yes, yeah, <laughs> don't, right. Don't do it. You don't know anything about cigars. Don't do this. You know. So, yes, and then yeah, uh, like I even wrote down. He said didn't speak to his father-in-law about selling it off because he was too ashamed. Yeah, oh, that's got to be that's got to be the worst. Uh, I know, right? Because you already probably want to impress the man, and then he tells you don't do this, and you do it. You're like, uh, well, he'd been married for a while, so he probably yeah. wasn't desperate to impress him at that point. But even sure. so, you still don't want to 
you know, look like a loser. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Failures can be embarrassing. And, um, but, but again, he's still successful, still has money. He's got plenty of money. His friends kept saying, dude, stop working. I I know no one said, dude, I need to stop (laughs) saying that. All his friends, I'd said that on the tour the other night. I was telling the story and I went, and dude, and and I went, I'm so sorry. So what did his friends kept telling him, stop worrying about it. You've got plenty of money, man. What would you, what would they say as slang back then to be like, dude, Uh, stop worrying about it? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure they used well. See, 1910. Hey. I'm, I'm. I was just going to go with some 1920s stuff. So um, yeah, fast talking, uh, uh, high trails. Old pal, old friend. You know, hey, buddy. You know, yeah. Hey, yeah. I think that's getting later. Buddy, pal, <laughs> yeah. Mac. You know. Hey, Mac. So, <laughs> um, but maybe, maybe old pal. Yeah. You know, would be something that maybe you'd say is a term of endearment to your friend. Well, he's not buddy. Maybe buddy. I don't know. And we're getting into South Park territory here. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not your buddy, pal. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> Um, so he stops by a store and pie. Shirley. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, <laughs> now we're going <laughs> airplane. Um, so he, he stops by a store and pie. So to meet some old friends and he seems cheerful. And we see, we definitely see this with people who um, have yeah. kind of decided that they're going to kill themselves. They'll, they'll mm-hmm. get happier because they're kind of like, okay, this is going to end. I've made my decision. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. so that can kind of be um, people, they don't take it as a warning sign. Cause a lot of times you just think, okay, maybe. Oh, he's finally better. getting better. Yeah. He snapped yeah. out of it. You know? And uh, you said he they thought he stopped by to say hello. And this is terrible. You said he just wanted to say goodbye. Yeah, that's yeah. More accurate, I think. So, yeah, he later, um, he, he you know, tries to he locks himself in the room, has some breakfast. Goes. Back it seems like he was going to do it and then didn't do it because mm-hmm, he locked Louisa the door to come right? down and have breakfast. Yeah. And then um, she stayed downstairs. He went back up and probably just made the decision, went yeah. into the bathroom, locks the door, you yeah. know, and well, probably less messy in the bathroom. Sure. You know? Well, I mean, so he, he, smelled, he, he smelled bacon and he was like, well, okay, hold on. <laughs> yeah, one last meal, well, yeah, although last... he didn't eat much. So, but still, yeah, yeah. probably the smell of bacon would do it. So uh, you said his spirit has remained there um, for about three decades. And you mentioned how multiple families ended up moving out of this house. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to know, uh, just for our listeners, um, have any of you ever moved out of a house specifically because of activity that scared you out of the house? Because I hear stories about this, but I, I know I hear stories about, about it too. About it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know, like, I, I know you've talked about some of these people with it, but I never knew if you. Well, I talk about people in moving things. in and not leaving, and they're always white people. That's a white people thing to not leave when <laughs> blood is coming from the walls and stuff. I mean, you know, well, that's a dumb. Do you remember? Thing, but you do know. you remember the the commercial though, where with it's like a I think it's like an insurance commercial or something. It's like a Texas Chainsaw thing, and it's like the murderers over there. It's like let's run into the cemetery. And yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's pretty decision. much it. So, uh, but yeah, I, I I haven't known anyone personally. I've, I've talked to people that say they you know, and a lot of times I I understand. You know, when, you know, you read about these cases, you report on these cases and people will say, well, I just couldn't afford to move out. You know, I didn't have anywhere else to go. Sure. Um, well, then it wasn't that scary. Right. Because if it's that scary, you're going to leave one way or another. Yeah. You're going to leave. <laughs> yeah. And leave even all if your you shit. Go to your parents' house or something or a friend or something. Yeah. Uh, these people moved out of this house. These people called the police and said, there's someone in our house. And right. the police come, they search it. They don't find anything. And then this guy tells a reporter, you know, <laughs> I'm not going back in this house and I don't know who's in there, but he can have it. But we are not coming back, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, I guess it's easier to do when it's a rental house. Yeah, I guess sure. if you buy the place, you're kind of screwed. So, yeah. uh, you know, um, so I'm going to say that if anyone gets back to us, 
uh, I'm going to say they were probably renters. Yeah, you know, yeah. Let, mean, let us know. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a but good, I'd good be point. curious to hear if if we know anybody or we've got somebody who listened to. I mean, I ever I, did that. I definitely agree because I think no matter how scared I would be, I'd go in there and say, like, "Listen, this is an investment. I need to take <laughs> care of this. I'm getting my <laughs> yeah. shit out. I'm turning off yeah, the cable." They say that's the best way to make it stop, or at least to calm it down. I mean, that's, stand people up, ask kinda. me, what do you do if your house is haunted? Tell it to stop. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe it won't work, but hey, it's worth a shot, right? Yeah, so, we got to lose you know. at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have there ever been any places that you've been to um, that you really don't want to go back into or that you wouldn't go back into? No. Um, no, I mean, I've been, I know you've been, you know, again, I'm not psychic or anything. I know. So I know I, you've been freaked out before, but I didn't know. Oh, yeah, sure, like, sure. Ever. But I, I've never been anywhere that I'd never go back to. Yeah, you know, um, because I mean, the only reason I ever go <laughs> to places like that is to have something happen. Experience so I'm something. definitely going to go back. Yeah, you know, even if it's even if it's freaky, even if it's scary, I'm still going to go back. Yeah, um, there have been places I've gone to where I didn't stay very long, mm-hmm. but then later went back. Yeah, I mean, I've had that happen a couple of times. Sure, like ooh, this is really uncomfortable, and I'm here by myself, and uh michael myers could kill me uh-huh. so you know now nah, it's i mean you know not not to be silly but yeah sometimes it's just it, been places it's that uncomfortable yeah you know? and i guess it it is it is kind of a different question because you're seeking that out whereas other people are like i just want a place to live <laughs> yeah just yeah i don't really want to that <laughs> yeah. to happen i didn't know? sign up for this <laughs> right um, right yes all right let's go talk about the mcpike mansion so troy yeah, you, which you, we have talked about before and i've we, probably sold some of these stories before but I did add a little color yes. to the story. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, you did. And, and yeah. so you, this is one of the places you claim is definitely haunted. I do um, think it's haunted. I really do. Built in 1869 for Henry G. McPike, designed by Luf- Lucas Feifenberger. We've talked about him before. Mm-hmm. Um, Henry comes to Alton in 1847. Uh, I want to give a shout out again to Jane and Christina McPike, who are my class. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, for, and I hope I'm going to tell them to listen to this episode if they do. Yeah, I man, and this is, there's a guy who, you know, ran a dozen different companies. A ton. Real estate, um, yes. made cardboard boxes you know yes. like the hainers did um was an insurance executive he grew a fancy grape that apparently is still in existence i was gonna discovered. ask yeah i was gonna still ask. in existence and he grew he he like you know i don't know how that works exactly but you somehow do a dr frankenstein with plants yeah i don't know how it works some but punnett square thing yeah somehow yeah. you you can breed plants like animals or something hmm. i don't know but um, but he grew this special type of grape. I mean, he, you know, combined whatever he needed to to make this wine with it. And he won tons of awards and things like constantly. Yeah. Well, hey, if anybody so, knows where to get any of this uh, wine. Yeah, I don't. Know. Yeah. But apparently it's still it's still around. The grape is still out there. I don't know what if it's still used for wine and stuff, but it still exists. I, I would eat fruit for this just to taste a McPike grape. If I it wasn't too. in yeah, wine like, form. you know, like I always said, I would drink. Well, I probably wouldn't drink it from the, you know, the teens, but I would drink Lent beer made with that recipe. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right. But not, I don't, wouldn't drink a bottle of yeah. beer from 1915, but, well, yeah. you know. Also, so. if you have one of those, don't open it. Just Yeah, yeah definitely don't open leave it. Leave it, um, yeah, leave it yeah, pure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but officially known as Hey, did Mount- you see that tray that I found? I don't think I've shown it to you. Tray? I, no. I found that limp, one of those chargers, those round trays. No way. When I was out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a real one. Where'd I you mean, find it? That still says limp on it and everything in an antique store. 
nice. and I'd seen them before, but they've always been too expensive. And this mm-hmm. one was not. Because, hey, well, anyway, didn't know that. Yeah, yet. it's a real one. I mean, it's you know, you know, I got the bottles and all that stuff, but this was I'd wanted one of these advertising trays for a long time, and I could never. They were just always, I could never justify the money, but anyway, right. so now we're on the limps. Let's move on. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> no, so, no, you're good. But no, we got awesome. talking about trying things from different periods. So yeah, right. All right. right. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, yeah. So Henry dies in 1910. Um, a shit ton of properties are distributed. I also, after his death. Yeah. I also like the fact that I guess I didn't realize that he was married three times. Yeah. I guess I only knew about two. Cause I don't think I'd heard about the divorce one. Which seems uh, okay. like crazy in the 1860s. There's not a divorced. thing that people did. Well, no, no, that's a thing people did. Uh-huh. So I would love to know that I, I should maybe dig a little. I'm just curious. I'd, I'm not using it for a project. I'm just kind of curious as to what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, why? You know, wonder why? Because that's a pretty extreme step in those days. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're a real rich guy, you can kind of do what you yeah, want. Yeah, I suppose. Maybe. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, so N- Nellie, one of his wives, ends up getting remarried to uh, to Moreland, and uh, she ends up passing away. So am I correct? Moreland brings Nellie's ashes back to Alton so she could be buried by Henry? Yes. Yeah. That- Nellie was the last wife. She was the third one, and she's the one who got the bulk of the estate. And Moreland was the daughter, and they went to oh, Europe. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Sorry, so no, Moreland was, Moreland was his youngest daughter. Got it. And okay. Nellie was his wife, and they had been on vacation in Cuba in florida in 1910 and then when they came home he got sick right afterward and died right, right, right. Uh, and then after that nelly got his a lot of his businesses and a lot of his money and then the other stuff was all split up between like kids and grandkids mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and then moreland went with her mom nelly to right okay europe and then they were there during world war one and had to get out of germany because they were americans and then went to italy and served in the red cross through the war which is pretty cool yeah and then uh they came back and settled she settled out west and then when she died moreland brought her ashes back okay got yeah. it got it okay yeah. yeah again even like with the limps lots of moving oh i know it's a lot people. of a lot of moving parts and then his son john had inherited the house mm-hmm. and the surrounding property, which is probably what's left now. That's probably what John inherited. Mm-hmm. And then he moved in there um, after uh, Nellie left to go to Europe. And then he lived there until 1936 and he died there. So Right. Okay. And then, yeah, the house changes hands a couple of times. And then in 1955, the house finally turned into apartments. That's when the ghost story started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about, you know, renovations and things yeah. like that, kind yeah, of bringing yeah, stuff yeah. up. Uh, one woman talks about how she and her brother were punished by having to sit on the <laughs> yeah, front I like steps. that story. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, it'd be kind of scary to sit on those steps. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I don't think that their mom put them out there because she thought there was a ghost, probably just because it was creepy. You yeah. Know? And that would, to, to, you know, it's just like putting them in time out in a corner, you know, something, but. I thought that was funny because they talk about how they kept seeing a ghost. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, and you talk about it, like it does. It, I don't know what it looked like necessarily back then, but it looks like a good haunted house. Yeah. You know? Well, so, yeah. And it's, you know, it's that the design, that Italianate design from, you know, the late 1860s, 1870s. That's the, that's the, what we picture is a stereotypical haunted house. Scooby Doo haunted the, house. The yeah. Adams Mansion, you know, from the Adams family. It's the Munsters' house. Yes. On Mockingbird Lane, you know, it is. That's the house. 
So it's not hard to picture it as a haunted house. And then when it became more and more decrepit and run down, then it really started looking like a haunted house and still does. So, yep. And you so. talked about some of the pointless destruction and, and vandalism and Ugh. things that happen. Um, yeah. I remember the first time I was thinking about this today when I was doing this outline, I remember the first time I heard my dad ever say the word vandal. And I was like, what, what is a vandal? And he kind of pauses and he looks at me, he goes, people that just like to hear glass break. Yeah, that's <laughs> and I a was pretty like, good definition. And I, and I didn't get it at first, but then after a while I was like, oh, okay. So just, yeah, yeah. just pointless, yeah, destruction. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a pretty good definition. I, I've never, I'm just, I'm not wired that way. It's yeah. just not something I would ever think would be fun. No. I don't know. I don't get off on that. So. Yeah, I, I don't get yeah. the psychology behind no, it. No, I don't either. I mean, I'm I'm so worried about trying to save that, you know, yeah. keep that stuff around. I don't want to see it destroyed. Right, yeah. And I, it makes me wonder just how much stuff was removed from that house. I know. Because I, it's I can't like, imagine. It's still a, it's still a wreck inside. I mean, mm -hmm. I know they've been working on it, but still. You know, yeah. It's rough. Well, yeah. Can you, can you talk about the current owners? Because I know you you work with them and um, every now and then and just tell me kind of like what all they've. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as I as I mentioned here, the Sharon, you know, <laughs> just always thought it was a neat house and they were having an auction. She went by and thought, oh, well, what the heck? Why not put a bid on it? And then, you know, whoops. I know. <laughs> I, 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 I so, wondered if she was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, that's probably what I'm thinking. I mean, it's like the dog that caught the car, you know. <laughs> Didn't know what to do. Uh, with now what? Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, I think that from my understanding, what she had told me in the past, that they thought that there would be a lot of you know, grants and historical money and things mm -hmm. to fix it up. And people have literally said and have told her that, you know, he's just not important enough. He just wasn't important enough. I mean, and maybe outside of Alton, well, of course, now people have heard of him, mm -hmm. but back then nobody heard of Henry McPike outside of Alton. And even a lot of people in Alton did probably couldn't have told you who he was. Right. You know, we know how, you know, what an impact he had on the city, but a lot of people just don't consider that important enough, especially throughout the state of Illinois. Um, it wasn't until they put it on that um, that the um, top ten endangered places, and that was, I want to say that was back in the late '90s, early 2000s. I can't remember. I remember when it was on there, but I don't remember the date. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, and even that didn't help a whole lot. It did bring attention to it, though. But you know, uh, I I it's very clear that the people who've raised the most money for that house have been the ghost people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's who, that's who saved it. I mean, that's who have kept it going as long as it has. I mean, by making it part of events. I mean, you know, we always, you know, make it a part of the conference, you know, we do it with lots of stuff and, you know, tours and people coming to visit and things that want to see the house that's that's why it's still standing that's why it has a new roof on it that's why they've been able to tuck point so much of the house i mean and it's you know it it's slowly improved but you know they need somebody to just hand them like three million dollars to fix right. this house i mean doing it a little at a time is really difficult you know and so people laugh and go oh yeah look they've been working on it for 20 years and also well of course they have because that's the way it has to work when you're, you know, raising the money to do it and you can't just raise it all at once. You just, it doesn't work that way in a, mm -hmm. in a situation like this. I mean, it's not like Abraham Lincoln lived there or something. Right. You know? Right. Uh, in that case, it would be, it'd be a national historic site or something, you know, but it's not, it's private property owned by some people who are trying to save a little bit of history. So, 
Yeah. That's my soapbox, you know, sure. speech on the McPike Mansion. Well, no, I mean, good for them. And yeah, if, if anybody's interested in it, yeah, please support them any way that you that you can. Uh, you talk about, you know, tons of ghost stories, despite no murders or suicides or anything and yeah. Sharon we said some of the most probable or you know likely things Sharon starts seeing ghosts Paul and uh Sarah um yeah, right. and you know hey she's going to be the one that's in there all the time kind of messing around and all that I I, I believe whatever she's, she's yeah I mean you know you're it. talking about the people who were there all the time not the people who just wandered through the house because they broke in and oh my god a ghost I mean it's somebody who's there you know around the clock half the time you know or working on something doing something and having experiences and, and coming into it with, you know, the idea of, well, I just want to save a historic home. I'm not doing it because it's haunted, you know, mm -hmm. and coming into it with not even really thinking about ghosts. And then suddenly you find yourself immersed in, you know, paranormal culture, essentially, because right. they've had to, because yeah, well, yeah, that's they the people or not. you've got to relate to, because those are the people that are, you know, doing the work or they're, at least doing the help, you know. Right. So. And you talk about um, a video from Renee, Renee Cruz. You, you call her a mutual friend. I would like to call her my um, well, I know, mother. I know. Well, um, we always talk about Renee. Yes. So yes. I think there's probably people who listen to the show are already familiar with Renee, but, you know. Yes. Um, and so. if, yeah, if you don't know her, she's great. But um, is there is there still a link to this video somewhere? Can I find I'd have it on to ask, show I have something? to ask Renee. Um, I know it was on a couple of, and these were these were shows from like, late 90s yeah, early yeah. 2000s before the big rush of ghost shows on tv and paranormal caught on camera and stuff these were there was there was a show the one that was on abc and she could tell you the name of it i can't remember but they debunked every single video on the show except for that one wow They're that's like, amazing that's awesome you're really sure how that would happen so i mean these were like tech guys uh, special effects guys they had no clue Wow. So it's been used in a few different things. And then they tried to recreate it for a couple of shows that Renee's like, yeah, no, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not giving you this video for <laughs> this, you know? And then they tried to like, you know, do a recreation and it looks ridiculous. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. So, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, Renee is, you know, Renee is Renee for us, but to people who don't know her, she is a, you know, a professor, she's a PhD in engineering and, you know, and it's like, she's not, this isn't some goofball with a camera wandering around, you know, thinking they find ghosts everywhere. You know, she was, you know, is extremely smart and knows what she's doing. And so when you see this kind of stuff from somebody like that, it's a lot easier to believe in its reality than just, you know, like I said, turning on the TV and yeah. there's an entertainment ghost show on. So. Yeah, they're they're trying to recreate it. It's just like me vaping in the corner a whole bunch. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> nope, doesn't look the same. Um, but yeah, but I last thing I want to talk about, Renee, uh, there's a story where she uh, a woman gets yeah. claustrophobic in the wine cellar, which is where a lot of activity, you know, tends to happen mm -hmm. in McPike Mansion. And she takes a woman out, and um, you all think that she's coming back. Clearly heard it. There's 10 of us down there. We clearly and this was the time. See, right now, if you go to the McPike Mansion, you could go into the wine cellar. Can't go up the upstairs of the house. You wouldn't want to, but until it's, you know, structurally sound. But um, you come in through a back door. They opened up a back piece in the back of the basement so you can come in. But at that time, there was no back door. Uh, you came into the basement by coming through the front doors, through the house, down the basement stairs, and then across the basement to the wine cellar. And you could hear everything because that same trip, I can tell you, I was up on the third floor of the house and it was at night and I looked down 
and I could see lights that were on that we brought in from outside, lights that were on in the first floor parlor. Mm -hmm. I was on the third floor. Yeah. I realized I should not be on this floor. Uh (laughs) Yeah. So that's, so you could clearly hear everything, right? So, but we clearly heard what we thought was Renee walk across the floor, come down the steps, uh, walk through the basement and the door actually opened. And I'm telling you, nobody was there. I mean, there's no one there. And there was a, I said, there was a group of us. It wasn't just me waiting for Renee. And then when she did come down, everybody's like, okay, so who's this? You know, <laughs> yeah. so they were like, um, uh, you know, and it's Renee. And everybody's like, and she walks in, everybody's looking at her and it's like, what? You know, damn. <laughs> so, yeah. No, that's yeah, a great story. Weird, so. uh, that's all I got for, right. for this Alton episode. Cool. 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 Well, this has been fun. We have two left. Um, yeah. So, and uh, I've got some, uh, especially the next one, there's, uh, the next one's got some new stuff, including one story that you've never heard that um, I know you haven't heard, but it is, um, it was like the biggest thing happening in Alton at the time. When all it right, happened. And it right. does involve a ghost and people were coming from all over the area to see it. I'm not joking. So, all right. Hell yeah. yeah. So that'll be the next episode. Then we'll have one more after that. And then we'll uh, we'll finish this up uh, before halloween because halloween season we do an episode every week so uh but it'll be just our finishing up our season on uh gone so we'll be able to sleep in uh november <laughs> yeah yeah well december so yeah yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> once Remember we the... finish that end of the year episode you know so <laughs> oh man <laughs> Awesome. All right. Speaking of which, yeah. speaking of which, uh, yeah, I've got a theme for us and I haven't told you yet. I need to tell you so I don't forget, but I'm okay. not going to tell you on the air. So. Okay. No. All right. Well, I, I, I'm looking forward to that and you all will find that out um, yeah. eventually. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, if you guys are uh, interested, uh, if you're from the Alton area, uh, it's Halloween time or getting close to Halloween time. All the tours are on sale now. Uh, our, our dinner events, our dinner tours, our walking tours, our bus tours, everything is on sale now for the Alton Halloween season. So stop by uh, altonhauntings.com. Check that out. Uh, Americanhauntings.net if you're looking for books or anything like that. And you can use our podcast code to save 10% off anything, uh, books and things from American Hauntings and also Cody's shirt store at AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. Um, the podcast code is podcast. That's podcast. it. And that'll save you 10%. Just put it in when you go to check out. Um, so, and if you are, they don't have enough podcasts from us and you need a little bit more American Hauntings in your life and who doesn't, uh, check out our Patreon show. Uh, we are in season three right now, uh, which is Sinister, which is the true story of H.H. Holmes and the Murder Castle. Um, that is at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Yes. Can I be done now? Yes. And I, I, okay, I, I, I meant to say this the last episode, but I, I say it all the time. But if you have not gotten back to me about your Patreon shirt and you want it, <laughs> email me all you gotta do is contact cody it's it's in your it's in your inbox um okay so this episode of the american hauntings podcast was written by troy taylor and is produced and edited by me cody beck we hope you've enjoyed this return to alton podcast and will be with us as we present 10 episodes only two more um of the history yeah of the history hauntings legends lore from one of the most haunted small towns in america thanks for listening we couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you so until next time goodbye so long see you later. later All right.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.